All right, let's turn to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to look at Daniel 11 through 12. We are wrapping up Daniel today. Can you believe that? Daniel is being wrapped up today. Unless I have a part two, but I can't anticipate a part two because it will be a while. And I'm not going to start something in the fall with Daniel. Uh, You can pray while we're gone of what the Lord would have us do in the fall when we get back. I've tossed around the idea of Galatians. Try to like to alternate an Old Testament, a New Testament. I want to keep going back and forth so that you constantly get the various deposits of God's good news and the various buckets that it comes in, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whether it's apocalyptic or whether it's story or whether it's propositions, poetry. Uh, There's been someone in my family's buying for the book of Acts. So, I mean, we're going back and forth. I don't know. So let's pray. Galatians, Acts. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) It's solved. All right. Let's look at Daniel chapter 11. We're going to look at 11 through 12. Uh, There's a father who was at the beach with his children. His four-year-old came running up to him, grabbed his hand, pulled him towards the shore, pointed him at a dead seagull that was laying right on the shoreline and says, Daddy, what what happened there? And uh, the father replied, well, he died and he went to heaven. And the four-year-old boy looks at the dead seagull, thinks for a minute and said, did God throw him back down? (laughs) Now, when we get into Daniel 11 and 12, it's going to push something that you and I think about in seasons in our life. And it's this. Do you find yourself wondering if God is throwing you around? Have you ever wondered that? If you haven't, you're a liar. Is God throwing me around? I mean, it goes like this. Look, I pray, I plan, I purpose for God's glory and things, and it blows up in my face, right? A derailed direction, a relationship that sours. Plans and agendas and situations and circumstances that sink, right? A financial setback. Here's the one that gets me. It goes something like this. I seek the extension of God's glory. Let's say I'm seeking the extension of God's glory in something, okay? So-and-so's conversion, um, personal holiness in my own life, meaningful ministry in this area or in that area, having God uh, provide in a substantial way so that ministry can go forward in Christ-exalting ways in certain areas, that there would be a provision or there would be a family transformation, there would be some way that I'm seeking God's glory to go forward and I'm wanting and praying and seeking it and and working hard for it. And then nothing happens. I mean, nothing happens. Or it gets worse. Sometimes it's worse for me. Maybe you can relate. Sin appears to win instead. Not just nothing happens, but sin gets more aggressive and powerful and appears to win. The world appears to win. The evil one appears to win. And I can't help it. It's the last thing I want to think about. It's the last thing I want to feel, but I can't help it. And I think, oh God, 
Are you throwing me around? In Daniel 11 and 12, you get thrown around. Do you think you can handle this passage? We get thrown around. This is what happens. In Daniel 10, we saw a war in heaven, didn't we? Well, that war in heaven now ripples. It echoes on earth. That's chapters 11 and 12. War in heaven ripples, echoes 11 and 12 on earth. Here's what we have. In 11, 1 through 35, what we have is uh, a spiritual battle on earth that has historical precision in past Events. It's so historically precise that liberal scholars want to say Daniel was written after the events. Because there's no way it could have been predicted with such precision before the events had taken place. Because, again, when a liberal theologian comes to the text, it comes with the glasses of suspicion, not the glasses of faith. Okay? So, in 1 through 35 in chapter 11, Greece, or you got Persia, Greece, the Romans. And what's happened is you got raw historical data that was earlier pictured in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8 as beasts, rams and goats, statues, remember? In the earlier part of Daniel, you got these pictures of the kingdoms of man. Well, now in chapter 11 and 12, you get the raw historical data of them. Here they come. Four generals. First from one great king called Alexander the Great. Four generals. They split the kingdom into four parts when Alexander mysteriously dies. Just rises and falls, the text says, real quick. These four generals then take over. And the reason why is because in between these kingdoms, Israel gets thrown around. Boom, boom, boom. And they feel like they're being thrown around. But then all of a sudden, in 36 of 11, there's no event in history presently or in the future that's being described yet. Something's happening in 11, 36 through 12. It's describing events unknown in history. So the historical precision is gone. Once we move past Rome, we're now into this Something's describing events after Rome leading up to the final end. And we don't know what it is. But what's happening during that time is the picture, the raw events that were just mentioned in 1 through 35. They were taken into a picture, particularly one person called Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. And he's transported into this area. And now he becomes a picture of what the kingdoms of man are like throughout history until the final end. All right, you with me? In other words, the kingdoms of man continue to oppose God and oppose God's people and God's people get thrown around until the end. So not just Israel, but now beyond Israel, all of God's people get thrown around by these beasts. That's where we're at. Okay, except there's one slight twist. And here's the twist. There is one picture of one person who is the ultimate fulfillment and embodiment 
of evil. The Antichrist. Shh. The Antichrist. So here we are. Apocalyptic events. And this picture is taken from Antiochus IV of Epiphanes. He's a king from the north. But then when we move out of 35, remember, he came from the Seleucid line. He was one of the generals in the northern kingdom in Syria. And the southern kingdom was in, in, Le- in Egypt. And you'll see in this passage, there's a war going on because they're always going on back and forth. That all of a sudden, remember, he wanted to Hellenize the Jews. And so remember what he did? We've seen it a couple of chapters ago. He did the abomination of desolations. What did he do? He forbid the sacrifice in the temple. He tried to stop all Jewish Israelite worship. He forbade the observance of the Sabbath. Those that did, he would massacre them. It was a time of horrendous persecution. He took a meteor and put it into the Holy of Holies. The abomination of abominations, it was called. All right. And he was he was a horrible persecuting lusting for powerful person. Now, that person, all of a sudden, in in chapter 12, gets mythologicalized. Mythized. What's that word? What is it? There we go. Thank you, Scope. He gets mythologized, but yet he's very real. He grows and his proportions are so big and so strong that he's this ultimate embodiment, a fullest expression of the lust of power and of evil. And that becomes the Antichrist. So here we have it. We have a war in heaven. Spiritual war echoing in earth. The church and God's people thrown around in the midst of it. All leading to the climax of a true, historical, ultimate evil one. And so the question is, how do you live in such troubled times like this? Or let's make it a little more personal. How do you live when you feel like God is throwing you around? Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to jump around. We're not going to read this whole thing. We're going to look at 11, 1 through 4. Then we're going to drop to 36. So 11, 1 through 4, I just want to give you a flavor of the historical precision. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, this is Gabriel speaking, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, that's interesting. Gabriel strengthening who? The Persian, Darius. Hmm. Two, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. So before Persia is done, there'll be three more. And the four shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, if you saw... Well, if you've read about Thermopylae and you've read about things, here's what happens. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and he'll do as he wills. That's Alexander. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, his generals, but not to his posterity, nor according to authority, which he ruled, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these historical precision, right? Now, let's go. The rest of the chapter is just mapping out historical precision of the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. All right. Pictures already seen in Daniel. But then let's drop to 36. Now we're taking this king from the north and he grows. 
in Disco's word. Okay? And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses. What that means, he shall honor the God of war. His God will be war. Instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rule rulers over many and he shall divide the land for a price. Now let's drop down to 12. Now we have this near history moving to a far history and the lines blur. Okay. And when it blurs at this time shall arise Michael, the great prince who's in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble with this Antichrist, such as never has been seen, has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book and many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and to some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. Those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. In other words, Many will try to figure out the exact time and date. Many will try to do that. And according to this passage, it shouldn't be pursued. Okay. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen. Ah, now we're back to those pictures we saw earlier in tent. Where is he? He's above the waters of the stream. And someone says, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, a times and half a time. That's three and a half times. Now, we've seen that picture before three and a half days and three and a half years. So we'll have to figure that one out. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end and all these things will be finished. I heard, but I didn't understand it. So then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves, make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem. 70 A.D. There shall be one thousand two hundred ninety days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the one thousand three hundred thirty five days. What? Does that bother you? That bothers me. You know why? Because God doesn't want us to know. It's what Jesus said. Only God knows the final day. He gives you an idea, which we'll look at, but he will not tell you the specific calendar date. 
Instead, 13, here's what we're to do. Go your way until the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have our work cut out for us. Let's ask God's blessing to make the work matter. Oh, Lord, we do ask and admit that we do not and cannot think rightly and interpret rightly what's written here, not because what's written here is not true and it's not clear and it's not set. It's that we are fuzzy headed, sluggish in our hearts and blind. We suppress the truth. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate work against the gravity of the nature of sin within us. Renew our minds. Revive our hearts so that these words echo and revive and ripple through us. This is something only you can do. And we saw that in chapter 10. So would you do it now in chapter 11 and 12? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the question of the text. The question of the text is, how do you live your life in such troubled times? Or on a more personal level, with a little more bite to it, how do you live your life when you feel like God is throwing you around? The answer is the point of Daniel 11 and 12. Whatever the answer is to how you live your life, that's the point. That's what's trying to be driven into you and me. That's what's trying to be driven into the Israelites and their hearts and their minds right now as Daniel is their redemptive model or the redemptive role player, redemptive agent. Okay, so we need to find the answer. So what we're going to do is you got to you got to hang with me as we go through the text to try to find the answer. For those of you that are built propositionally and deductively, you're going to be like, What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? And those of you that love stories and you're a little more relaxed, you're like, ooh, this is great. Whenever you get to the points, fine with me. Just tell me eventually. So what we're going to do is follow the passage and let the form dictate the structure of the sermon. So we've asked the question. The answer's the point. We've got to find the answer. So let's find the answer. And once we find it, then we're going to see what we're supposed to do with it. Okay? Can you do this? I think you can. Daniel, as we know, came in chapter 10 as close to God as a man or a woman can get and still live. Remember in chapter 10, he came face to face with the Son of Man in the great vision. Remember, heaven opened up. A heavenly being stepped onto a corrupted earth and it was boom. It was just boom. It was a nuclear explosion of the spiritual kind. And it was a shock blast that knocked Daniel's socks off. Literally, his face is on the ground. And it took three divine touches of truth to restore him to strength. And the picture's very vivid. Remember, he goes from being passed out on his face, on the floor. The first touch gets him up to all fours. And eventually, 
He stands. The second touch gets him from standing and not being able to speak to actually being able to speak. And the first thing that comes out is he acknowledges his weaknesses. Powerful, powerful picture of what the grace of God looks like when it changes you. You become a confessor of weaknesses. Your weaknesses. And then the last touch, as he speaks, the last touch says he is now strengthened. Okay? So when we get to 11 and 12, Daniel now stands in the strength of the Lord amidst spiritual battle on earth. If, if I was a betting man, I would bet that Paul was meditating on this when he wrote Ephesians 6. Now, I'm just coming up with that. I haven't read that by any commentator or scholar. But you have a man who's strengthened in the Lord who watches now spiritual battle. And when Paul is in Romans, he says, stand strong in the Lord amidst the principalities. Okay, so I think we're getting the picture here in 11 and 12. And what happens here is he has shown the near future and the far future. He's shown with historical precision as he's watching kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall with specific precision. He doesn't know them in the future, but those looking back say, oh, man, that's incredible. Persia, Greece, Rome, it's just to a T. All these kingdoms of man that rise and fall, that oppose themselves to God and oppose God's people, rising, falling, rising, falling, right? And then he gets this picture where the the near future and the far future start to blur. And he gets a picture of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This conquering king from the north. And he gets this picture of him, but it moves beyond historical precision to mythological proportions. And he becomes this ultimate embodiment of evil. Okay? Now, did Daniel know when the line was crossed between Epiphanes the fourth? Antiochus the fourth of Epiphanes and the Antichrist. Did he know when the line blurred? That's a lot of discussion today. My personal opinion is he did know, but it doesn't matter to the point of the text. So if you're like, if you're one of those that say, you know, he, he couldn't have known. I lean that he did know. That's a little slight parenthesis for some of you that are digging into Daniel. And I know some of you that are, you're going to run across that. And it's going to, it's going to be like a little, you're going to trip a little bit. And you're going to say, oh, did Daniel know? You know, did, did the Old Testament authors, did they know the specifics of the things they spoke about in the future? And some folks want to derail us and, and uh, make that a problem somehow to the text. It doesn't change the point of the text, whether you have him knowing or you, whether you have him not knowing. He just kind of has a ballpark figure. 
I lean that he do, does know, if that's uh, of any coincidence or consequence. All right, let's keep going. At this point, Daniel sees the answer. So now he sees this embodiment, right? At this point, he begins to see the answer to his prayer way back in chapter 10. We never answered that prayer. Remember, what was his prayer? The whole reason why he was praying and he fasted for 21 days and he didn't put ointments on him and he, he didn't groom himself and he, he, refu- he refused the finer delicacies of his diet. Do you remember why he did that? Because he was wondering, what about Israel? What happens to your people, Yahweh? What's going to happen to them? Well, he now gets the answer. Let's look at the answer. He gets an answer and a great rescue, a great resurrection. Look at chapter 12 and let's look at verse one. At that time shall rise Michael, the great prince who's in charge of your people. Okay, that's part of the answer. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never before has been seen since there was a nation up to that time. Now, remember, he's already talked about a historical precision, this Antiochus, the fourth of Epiphanes, who's going to do horrible things later on under the Greek rule to Israel. And that gets blown into a picture of an even greater evil one. And that's what's being talked about here. Okay. And since there has been a nation to that time, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name's written in the book, many, as many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth, they shall awake some to everlasting life. And we have the picture in the Old Testament of that great day when the archangel stands and blows his trumpet and out of the ground, everyone comes up. Everyone comes up. Everyone's bones come up. The wicked where they go. The righteous to shine like the stars in the starry host. See, you wonder... Well, what about Joseph's bones in Genesis 50? They rise. What about, what about Samson's bones underneath the Philistine pillars pounded into the dust? They rise. What about those that have been chewed up by lions and sawn in pieces? They rise. Well, what about those that were taken into the captivity of Babylon and never even made it because they were slaughtered? Or lived during the divided kingdom when the, the kings were going crazy and the kingdoms dividing and who is the king? They arise. What about the French Huguenots? They arise. What about you and what about me? We arise. Why? Because the book of life always beats the beasts. In this passage. The book of life always wins. And even though these beasts pictured, but now historically described with precision, throw you to and fro, you win. That's the point. 
All right. And then Daniel's told, seal it up. I'm done. Vision's done. Boom. Seal it, Daniel. Now, you're Daniel, okay? You just get this incredible picture. You're just given this incredible blow through of all of redemptive history. You can't believe what you're seeing. And then it comes to an abrupt ending and we're told, seal it up, Daniel. Close the books. It's done. You're Daniel. Are you done? Heck no. Don't, don't shut it yet. You've got one burning, aching question still in you that you're trying to get out. And so did Daniel. But the most stunning thing in the passage is Daniel doesn't answer it. Ask it. One of those heavenly beings asks the question, what is it? How long? How long are we going to get thrown around? And remember that was asked back in chapter 8 by one of the angels too. You're waiting for Daniel to spit it out. He can't. He's probably too stunned. And the angel goes, because remember, there is a close union between the invisible heavens and the visible earth. When God created, he created the invisible heavens, the spiritual realm that we're talking about, and the visible earth. The stuff we're seeing with Daniel in 11 through 12 and all the kings. They're all a part of creation. They're united together. They're not separate. So they're there and they're seeing this and they're saying, well, how long is this going to be? How long is it going to take, Lord? And then the answer is given in verse 7. So let's look at verse 7. Here's the answer. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? See at the end of verse 6 there? So you see it? Now look at verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time, a time, one year, a times, two year or two and a half a time. You get three. One plus two is three and a half. It's a picture already being used. And when the shattering of the power of the Holy Ones come, then all these things will be finished. And what you get here is the answer is you get the son of man the divine champion, God's warrior, the one who crushes the head of the serpent, the one who overloaded and overwhelmed Daniel in chapter 10. He's standing and he's he's on the midst of the water. He raises his hands to heaven and he makes a covenant with God. He swears an oath to God. How long, the creature asks, and he says, this long and no more. A time, a times, and half a time. So help me. Do you see this? This is a breathtaking picture. God making covenant with God over you. And how long it will take. But Daniel says, no, I I need more than that. Because that's exactly what he says. Oh, my Lord, look at verse 8. I heard, but I didn't understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I I need more specifics. I need to know exactly the case. And what is he given? Well, he's given another picture. What he's given is two more, two more numbers. And again, the whole point of this is this. You have the time, a times and a half a times. That's the three and a half times. Remember in the 70th week? What was those three and a half times called? Three and a half days. You remember where they took place? Remember in the 70th week in Daniel, 
Those of you that were tracking with us, remember, we got into the 70th week. We spent five weeks in the 70th week. We got to the 70th week and we know that the 70th week was the the inauguration of the last week of redemptive history. The 70th week began with Passover at the cross and it continued until the final end. That was the 70th week. That's what we're told. And then we're told in that last week, though, that there's there's three and a half days and three and a half days. And the three and a half days here and the three and a half days here. Well, the three and a half days here are the overlap of the destruction of the temple and the old covenant order coming to an end. Destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then the next three and a half days were the age of the church. And so Jesus swears it will be three and a half times. If you're in Revelation, it would say three and a half years. Because the picture is still the same. The time between the first coming and the second coming. It's the time that's half of a Sabbath year. Seven years is a Sabbath. When you enter into the Sabbath, you enter into what? What do you enter into? Rest. When you're at three and a half, you're not there yet. And it's the time of the church. We're in the tribulation. We're waiting to rest. Okay? Pictures. Not literalism. Pictures. All right. Daniel wants more. We want more. We want to know specifics. So we get verse 8 and we get the fact that he asked for it. And here's the answer. The answer is the answer to our question. So here we go. How do you live your life in such troubled times? How do you live your life when you feel like God's throwing you around? Here's the answer. His answer to Daniel is the answer. Daniel was asking how long God said something else. Verse nine. He said, go your way. (laughs) That is a common Hebrew phrase, meaning this. Daniel, live your life. Wait a minute. Give me a calendar. Give me a clock. I've got to know, God, if I'm to have any comfort in this life, I've got to know when that day is. If I'm to have strength and peace of mind, if I if I can at least get myself around and control the future a little bit and have a little say and a knowledge of what you're going to do and when you're going to do it and how it's going to end and maybe what it's like for me and how long do I got and how long do my kids got? Do I have grandkids? Do my grandkids see this day? I've got to know if I know I'll have comfort, if I know I'll have peace, if I know I can be strengthened to live my life to your glory. And God says, no. No, you don't need that to be comforted. You don't need it to be strengthened. You don't need it to get on with your life. You don't need it at all. Go your way, Daniel. Live your life, Daniel. It's not for you. And Jesus said, only God knows that day. You, my disciples, live your life. Go your way. And there's the point. The point, in case we missed it, he repeats it in verse 13. Go your way till the end. That is the final end. That's for every saint 
that lives between now and the day that Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is culminated in an exact antichrist evil one in the final day. And you're told and I'm told to go our way. All right. So the point is go your way in your life. So how do you live in such a troubled time? Go your way. Live your life. How do you live when you're being thrown around? You feel like you're being thrown around by God. God says, go your way, Michael. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Alicia. Go your way. Live your life. So what does this mean? What well, means when you're thrown around, go your way. Do not panic. Do not give in to fear. Go your way. What does it mean when temptation is strong? Go your way. Do not give in to the seductive lies of temptation. Go your way. Live your life. When you are hurt, go your way. Do not give in to avoiding pain. Do not give in to trying to live a self-protective life. Do not give in to avoiding pain. Live your life. Go your way. When your parenting has left you feeling exhausted and inadequate, God says to you, parents, go your way. Do not give in to despair. Do not give in to hopelessness. Go your way. When your boss or your co-workers make it seem like living a godly life in a godless workplace, like an impossible call. When your boss and your co-workers make it seem like living a godly life in a godless workplace is an impossible call. Go your way. Do not cower. Do not quit. Go your way. When you don't get what you want, brothers and sisters, go your way. Do not demand to get what you want. Do not be dominated by your desire. Go your way. When you feel lost and confused and beat up and depressed, whether it be from your own sin, whether it be from the sin of another, whether it be from the world, whether it be directly in spiritual battle from the evil one, or whether you don't know why you feel like you're beat up, you don't know why you feel like you're confused, you don't know why these things are going on. It's nameless to you. It's just, I feel it. I'm here. Go your way. Do not give in to anxiety and worry. Go your way. Do not become neurotically needful to control everything. Go your way. Here's the last one. When you realize real life is a tribulation of living in a fallen world and not being home yet, go your way. Do not Super saint it. I'll call it supersize it spiritually. Yeah, I want to supersize, spiritual supersize, because I'm a super saint. When you're in the tribulation and you realize that you're in a fallen world and you realize that you're not home yet, the call is not to a faulty belief system of super sainting everything, over spiritualizing everything, to 
Here's a word for you. Have an over-realized theology of eschatology in the near and present. You know what that means? If you have an over-realized eschatology in your theology and the way you live your life, what you're thinking and what you're believing and what you're putting on yourself and on other people is glory now. We get glory now. You don't have glory now? I mean, what's wrong with you? It could be something physical. So we have healing powers and we have gifts to heal them right now because glory now. Does God heal? Of course He heals. But is it glory on demand? Do we have glorification now? No. Glory now? No. Glory is missing. Glory is not here. Glory is waiting for us. Glory is to come. Don't supersize your spirituality. Go your way. Live your life. As Luther said, if the Lord was coming tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. What? Yeah, I'd plant a tree. That's real spirituality. Okay. We're done. Oh, I almost forgot something. I almost forgot to give you the last phrase at the end of go your way that actually makes it makes you able to do it. Who asked how long in verse six? Who is asked? A man clothed in white, right? Son of man. He's the one that's asked how long. Where is the son of man in verse six? Above the waters of the stream. Is that just an accidental phrase? No relation to the rest of the Bible? At creation, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters when it created. At the Exodus, when they were crossing the Red Sea and then moving into the Promised Land, the Spirit of God hovered over Israel at the waters. When it led him into the promised land, it was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, hovering over them, suspended over them, dwelling among them. At Sinai, when God created a new, cre- a new people for a new land, so now we're into a new creation. The Exodus event was the purchasing of a new creation. And now he gets them at Sinai and he's naming them his people. He's covenanting with them. You're my people. You're sons of God. You're my creation, my new creation. What does the text say? A thick cloud hovered over them. When Jesus was baptized by John and his ministry of the new creation began, Jesus is now the Second Adam that's going to bring in a new creation with a new people and a new land in the new heavens and the new earth. And his ministry begins and what happens? He's baptized and what happens? Here's what the text says. When he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him. In other words, hovering over him like a dove. One more. When Jesus ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And the new creation is inaugurated. And he sends his spirit to be with his church, to be with his people. 
What happened when that happened at Pentecost? Listen to the text. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and hovered over them. The Son of Man, in chapter 12, is hovering over the stream. And when we read our Bible in one sitting, we go, oh my. Because the question in 11 and 12 is not how long when you're thrown around. It's where is God when you're thrown around. And the answer in this text is hovering over you. With you. With me. So now we can complete. What do you do? Or how do you live in such troubled times like this? How do you live when you're thrown around by God? The answer is go your way, knowing your God is with you. That's how you live. And knowing your God is with you, that's how you go your way. That's how you do everything we just looked at. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hover over us. The New Testament language is now you dwell with us. You are with us. You've given us your spirit. A part of that covenant that you made a long time ago. And you swear that you'll be with us. So who are we to doubt it? And who are we to say it ain't true because we hurt? Who are we to say it ain't true because it's tough times? Who are we to say it ain't true because we don't feel it? You swear it. Push this into us, Lord, by your Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.